I'm Craig Hendricks. I'm on the faculty at Johns Hopkins University in the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and also in the Division of Infectious Diseases. I'm the welcome professor and the director of the Division of Clinical Pharmacology here, and I've been in this position for about five years, and I've been on the full-time tenure-track faculty here at Hopkins since the late 90s. I did my training here originally in the 80s. I had about eight years on active duty in the Air Force, doing mostly HIV care and research, and most of my work since I've joined the faculty at Hopkins in the late 90s has been in HIV prevention for the most part. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis products that are in the pipeline. This is a subject of my part in a session at ID Week that will be focusing on HIV prevention, looking more generally at issues of prevention in women, talking about the pipeline, which is my role, and then also talking about implementation of pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. But the focus of this is mostly going to be on products that are in development that aren't yet available to folks at risk of HIV infection, but hopefully will be soon. Some of these are very clearly going to be ready soon because they're currently under review by either the uh, European Medicines Agency, the European equivalent of the FDA, or the U.S. FDA. And then there's a bunch of other things, but most of these I'll focus on things that are already in clinical development, but this will necessarily exclude a very large number of things that are under study in preclinical or animal or laboratory development, but not yet to the clinic. It's important to start with, you know, why we're even looking at a pipeline when we have a very effective product, uh, the fixed-dose combination of tenofovir emtricitabine that is already licensed by FDA for persons at risk of HIV infection. So why do we even need other things? But I think the, the sort of the first big topic is to understand the value of a choice of options that are available. Um, then also we'll talk about sort of two different strategies that have some overlap. One is to look at long-acting PrEP strategies that are in the pipeline, and then also to look at vaginal and rectal microbicide formulations that are in the pipeline. Now, some of the vaginal formulations are, in fact, long-acting, and, and some of these, in fact, are under review currently by the European Medicines Agency. So it sort of fits and is the bridging topic between the long-acting part and the topical microbicide part. But all three of these really fit as a whole, where the long-acting and the topicals are providing additional options to existing our existing single uh, HIV prevention strategy in, in terms of chemotherapeutics. And I should also say that the focus is going to be on, on drugs for HIV prevention rather than other behavioral or different uh, societal in implementation programs that would certainly incorporate the use of drugs in HIV prevention. So I wanted to start by talking about choice. And it may seem odd, but I'm actually going to start by mentioning the value of choice in contraception because it turns out that uh, having multiple products that are available for contraception has been a, a huge benefit to increase the overall level of effective contraception on a population basis. Uh, there are some studies that show that every time you add an additional contraceptive formulation or option, that is, you know, you add, when you add an injectable to, to oral pills, and when you add an implantable, if you add a long-acting removable, for example, like an IUD, there's an increase. In some of the studies, this increases as much as 12% increase in overall contraceptive use in a population, and these are all very effective forms of contraception, so the overall level improves in a population. 
the question is, given the similarities in some of the behaviors that are involved in, in terms of contraception and HIV prevention, how steep will this benefit curve be for additional products that come online for HIV prevention? And are there important ways in which our PrEP experience will differ from contraception? I think, I think it will, of course. There is much, it's more complex in some ways. The population is a much broader population at risk. There's more routes of transmission and different, as I mentioned, different populations. But I think the contraceptive experience is a beneficial one. So if you look at the total pipeline, there are, as I said, there are dozens and dozens of options that are under development in the preclinical phase. There's probably a, a half dozen or maybe a dozen or so products that are in the clinical space that are in development, and they will provide these additional options in addition to the single product that's currently licensed, which is the tenofovir m fixed-dose combination that is taken orally once a day. It has very high levels of protection. But there are many individuals, in particular women, who, at least in the clinical trials that have been done, have seemed to struggle somewhat with either adapting the use of the, the one pill once a day for PrEP or with maintaining that. And both of those are important. In fact, in some of the studies, it looks like the uptake, that is the women that are willing to try that, is actually fairly high, 80, 90 plus percent or so. The challenge is in the women staying on that, and that's where the rates of persistence with PrEP and in particular with adherence, even if they say they're marginally persistent with taking the PrEP, falls off. And it's, it's precisely in that setting that it's valuable to have another option, and it might be a topical option like an intravaginal ring. It might be an injectable or an implantable. Those are under investigation. But these are all examples of different kinds of formulations that get at different kinds of problems with one pill once a day. So one of the issues is adherence. And that's why the long-acting strategies are believed to be a big benefit because you would show up at a clinic and you would get an injection and you would come back every couple of months or you get an implant and you might come back as seldom as once a year or so. So those are more medicalized and they require interactions with the healthcare system, although only occasionally, but they get around the problem of adherence. You just have to show up, but much less frequently. They're counterbalanced somewhat by also being systemic in the same way that the pill is systemic. And there are many individuals that don't want to have to show up in a clinic to get an injection or an implant because of some stigma related to that, in the same way that they don't want to carry the pills around because there's stigma related to that if people associate that with HIV infection. But the other issue is that there are many individuals that don't want to have drug in their body all the time either for reasons of safety or just sort of utility, because if one's risk is only occasional, perhaps one's prevention strategy needs only be occasional. And that's why there's this other strategy of using what we'll call on-demand PrEP, which could be done with pills. It could be done with topical formulations like vaginal or rectal microbicides. But that's, that's kind of a different strategy where prior to sex and hopefully immediately prior to sex, one could take the PrEP, topical PrEP, or the pills for PrEP, and there's been proven to be effective uh, a very short course regimen, at least for men that have sex with men. It's not been studied in women, and there are many, myself included, who believe that that would be a risky strategy, certainly risky before it was tested formally in clinical trials. But for men that have sex with men, and probably in transgender women, that strategy of taking two pills before sex and then one pill once a day each of the days after sex is highly effective, has high levels of uptake. 
And if you give men that have sex with men an option, about half will choose daily and about half will choose the on-demand regimen. So again, showing that there is a variety of desires of different types of prevention strategies, even with the existing formulations. If we look at the long-acting, there are a couple things. There's an oral formulation. It's a drug that's it's very new. It's been in some clinical studies. It looks like it has very nice activity in a treatment setting. It's just starting to be studied as an oral pill in a prevention setting. And that may have such a long half-life that could be taken perhaps as infrequently as weeks or a month and still provide protection. That could be effective sort of for long-term, just been taken once a month, or it might be useful as an on-demand strategy. Stepping up a bit, one could have an infusion of monoclonal antibodies. These are under study. Currently, what they're looking at is an infusion of an hour-long infusion once a month there are injectables that are uh, well along in their prevention studies for efficacy. This would be the capotegravir long-acting formulation. It looks very good for treatment and is more advanced for that. I think it's currently under review at the uh, FDA. But this is in currently active in two very large clinical trials to see if it works for prevention. Sort of stepping up another level, uh, perhaps more complicated, but even longer acting. Oh, by, I should say the capotegravir is about an every two-month injection. Stepping up a bit from there, we could go to an implantable device that might last as long as a year. There's two different products that are in development. One is in development by the pharmaceutical industry, and this involves a kind of a novel mechanism of action. This Latrovir is the name of the drug. Their implantable device, uh, this is under development by Merck, looks like it, it may work as long as a year. There's another product that is a tenofovir, analog is tenofovir alphenamide, which is also in a rod. Uh, this is about to enter clinical studies in uh, Republic of South Africa. So that's kind of the most complex, in a way, of the long-acting strategies. There's some other really fancy things that aren't quite as far along clinically that are sort of implantable reservoirs that you can re actually replace the drug through the skin and sort of refill the reservoir as you need to. There's also micro needles, which is another kind of technology where you have these tiny needles that are either coated or, or made to a large extent from the drug and it's just put on the skin and usually some kind of nano formulation then dissolves slowly from these micro needles after the patch is removed and that also is hoped to be developed as a long acting strategy. The other thing, which is sort of the bridging that I should mention, is this is a vaginal product. This is the intravaginal ring that has an antiretroviral. That's the piverine. This has been proven to be effective modestly, around 30% effectiveness in a modified intent-to-treat analysis. This is currently under review by the European Medicines Agency. And this is a long-acting strategy. The, the ring is placed inside the vagina, the woman would replace this on a monthly basis. There are other products that are similar that, that would last as long as three months, so less frequent use. So these are also long-acting strategies. When the clinical studies were done, it turned out there was a much higher level of effectiveness in women that were a little bit older, but by that I mean older than 21 or 25, depending on which analysis you look at. But in younger women, there was more difficulty leaving the ring in and there's a lot of detailed work that's gone into what the, exactly those reasons are. But it's hoped that this will be the next and the first long-acting form of pre-exposure prophylaxis, a vaginal ring. If we stay in the topical space, we can switch now to more of on-demand strategies. So staying with a vaginal product, there are fast-dissolving films, like the Listerine 
breath film that dissolves very quickly, but this would be placed inside the vagina. It would dissolve very quickly. One dose might be enough to last for a day or so. There's also some longer acting formulations that have been studied in macaques and look like they'll last up to two weeks. Uh, so that still, I think, would be considered on demand, but it would require only a single application of the product that would protect for a relatively brief period of time, but it could be days to a week or so. There are also fast-dissolving inserts. So these are more like tablets, but we'll call it an insert because we're going to insert it into the vagina. We could also insert it uh, into the rectum, and the hope is that these products, and there's currently a fixed-dose combination of two antiretroviral drugs using this strategy, that could be used. Now, these are not necessarily long-acting, but we haven't even sorted out the kinetics locally for the drugs that are in these two formulations. But here is a formulation that I haven't mentioned before that you could apply to the vagina if there's going to be vaginal sex or to the rectum if there's going to be receptive anal sex. It seems unlikely that a drug that's applied vaginally would achieve sufficient concentrations into the rectum that a single product applied locally would cover both locations. This is one likely disadvantage of a vaginal product. A rectal product also would have the same kind of a problem. But let me move on to focus on something that's rectal specific. What we've heard a lot of when we talk to the community is, is that the folks at risk want something not only that is on demand, but is what I'll call behaviorally congruent. And by that, I mean essentially medicating a product that's already in very common use in a sexual setting. So if the setting is receptive anal sex, if I can medicate the anal lubricant or the lube with an active antiretroviral drug, or if I can medicate a douche or an enema that is very commonly used prior to receptive anal sex, then I have a product that is already, the type of product, the, the lube or the douche, is already in common practice. The only difference is that I've now medicated it. So I will change the product a little bit by medicating it, and you basically get dual use. So the lube works as a lube, and it also works as, a, as prep, and the douche acts as a cleansing douche so that the, the receptive partner feels, feels clean or whatever the other reasons might be that one douches before a receptive anal sex, but in addition provides HIV protection. So this is on-demand and behaviorally congruent. I think the lubricant development is going to be a challenge for reasons we don't need to get into, but the douche has completed a phase one study. There are several other phase one studies that are ongoing, and their plans are underway to do a phase two extended safety study for a, a rectal douche. So that kind of rounds out the, the types of products that are in the pipeline. I haven't been very specific about the active antiretroviral drugs in most of these cases. Many of these involve existing drugs that are proven to be effective for treatment. The one important exception to that would be, there would be a couple, the dipivirine intervaginal ring, the capotegravir long-acting, although that's been proven, not yet licensed, but proven effective for treatment also. I mentioned the eslatrovir, which is being developed in an oral formulation, also in a implantable rod formulation. That's many of the drugs that are further along in clinical development that have completed the phase one studies. So those are probably names that are common to folks that are involved in HIV treatment. So the management of those, especially for infectious disease docs and general practitioners that are comfortable caring for folks with HIV, it would be a shorter list and a simpler list in some ways. Again, because the, especially with these topical formulations, the systemic exposure is exceedingly small compared to the 
systemic long-acting things like the infusions, the injections, and the implants, similar to the oral pills, where there's always concentrations in the blood, whereas the topicals, the vaginal, and the rectal products have very, very low concentrations, usually as much as 50 to 100 times lower concentrations in the blood, therefore much improved systemic safety profile. I think the most important point here is that we have very effective methods for HIV prevention, primarily the already FDA-approved one pill once a day with fixed-dose combinations and alfavir emtricitabine. But that's not enough. It's very clear that there are pockets of the population, both men and women, that are at risk of HIV infection that would benefit substantially from additional PrEP options so that one could make a choice for a product that best fits what their needs are. And we mentioned a couple of these variables, but we need to have additional products. And the hope is that then the overall uptake of PrEP, the persistence with PrEP, and the maintaining high levels of adherence with PrEP would result in an overall elevation of the protective level of PrEP and reduction of incidence on a population level. The strategies are several. One is to either be long-acting or only on-demand and much more short-acting. Some of the long-acting formulations go from injectables, implantables, some products that currently have to be given by infusion, but these are also added to intravaginal rings that are probably the closest to approval by regulatory agencies. The other strategy was to apply the drug only locally to the vagina or the rectum so that the protective concentrations are maintained locally, but concentrations in the blood and in the other organs that might be subject to toxicity with systemically administered drugs, you don't have those problems. And in addition, those would be applied on demand, so only where they're needed and only when they're needed. And in addition, there's the behaviorally congruent category that would actually not require additional behavior of taking the drugs for prevention, but we would medicate products that are already used routinely in the sexual life of those individuals, be that a vaginal douche, rectal douche, or vaginal or rectal lubricant. So thank you for listening today, and for additional information, please just click one of the links below. Thank you.